You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. There's a lot of uh, political resonances in this novel. You talked about Machiavelli. He's tortured, and when he's tortured, we may be seeing Machiavelli in Florence, but we're thinking exactly what's happening right now. And I wonder if you'd care to talk about this, uh, creating those kind of resonances as a, as a writer between the past and the present and how much happens because you plan it and how much happens because you discover it. Well, I mean, it's it's about 50-50, that, you know, the discovery and the planning. Um, but, I mean, the truth is that you can't avoid the moment in history from which you write. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not writing a 16th century novel. I'm writing a novel about the 16th century from a position in the 21st century. Um, and so it's inevitable, I think, that when you look at the past, you find your preoccupations in the past, you know, and, and that's what most interests you to write about. Um, I mean, having said that, I don't, I don't like the kind of books that kind of put neon signs in them saying contemporary relevance here, you know? <laughs> um, and it annoys me when books um, too much point out what they're trying to do, you know? So in the end, at a certain point, I had to actually really forget about the modern world, you know, and really just write about the world I was writing about and be confident that really, since my readers were also reading from the 21st century with the preoccupations that, that we all have, that they would find the resonances if they chose. You know, they, they could look at the torture of Machiavelli, as you say, and, and, and think about other forms of uh, physical abuse that are going on now, or they could look at, the, I mean, this is a period of terrible wars, you know, um, in, um, everywhere. I mean, in India, this is the period when the Emperor Akbar is trying to pacify the country, and so he's having to fight a lot of wars to do that. It's the period which the Ottomans, you know, had just conquered Constantinople and renamed it Istanbul, and, and they were fighting a series of wars on their borders to establish their kingdoms, including, by the way, um, a, a battle, a war against Dracula. Um, there's a moment when I discovered that Dracula could be in my novel. <laughs> I was happy to see that. I, I was so, I don't know, I just thought I'd gone to heaven actually when I found this out. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, of course, again, Dracula, I guess, needs a little rehab. Um, uh, <laughs> it's not much you can give a guy who was into impaling people. Though. No, no, but the thing is, first of all, we should say Dracula was not a vampire. You know, that was made up by Bram Stoker. Although, given, as you say, given how bloodthirsty he was, a little vampirism might have been sort of kind of a relief yeah. you know, <laughs> compared to what he actually got up to, um, the, the impalings of tens of thousands of people. Um, also, Dracula wasn't the Prince of Transylvania. You know, that's also something that Bram Stoker made up. Um, Romania has two provinces. Transylvania is the more northern one, and Wallachia is the more southern one. And he was actually the Prince of Wallachia, and that's what gave him a common frontier with the, with the Turks, and that's why they were at war with him, because he was allied with their enemies and blah, blah. Uh, but it just was a wonderful moment to think, I can put Dracula in my novel without making it up. 
actual, the real guy. Here he is, Vlad the Impaler, Vlad Dracul, the dragon. You know, I can put him in my book and kill him. <laughs> and kill him. That's, that's what's even better. Um, yes, if you want to read about the death of Dracula, um, actually, that bit's fictional in the book. Okay. <laughs> uh, because one of my fictional characters kills him. I, I think we're going to take some questions from the audience okay. now. And I'd like the people in the audience, if you have a question for Mr. Rushdie, uh, just stand up, say your question, make it snappy, and I'll repeat it so everybody can hear it. Sir. Can we see the audience? Yeah, can we turn on the lights out there? It's a little bit uh, dim. Because we can't see the audience at all, so you could be... I can see a glaring light, but... Uh... Can we have the house lights up? Ah, there we go. Ah. Look, there's people there. Yes, good. <laughs> it's not just us. I don't know, I heard a noise. Uh, there's a gentleman right there. I can actually see him. Stand up. Uh, the questioner wanted to know about Mr. Rushdie's knighthood. Um, what can I tell you? The queen is a very literary woman. <laughs> the popular image of the queen as being only interested in horses and corgis is clearly a misapprehension. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I just, uh, you know, I was, it came out of the blue and it amazed me as much as anyone else uh, about, just about, just about a year ago it, it, when it happened. And um, yeah, I thought, I thought you had to be a pop star. <laughs> um, and, and actually, it, I, I'm a little bit friendly with, with Mick Jagger and, and when I saw him after this happened, he said, oh, well, I see, I see they're letting, letting anybody in now. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, can't even sing. <laughs> uh, there's a gentleman right there in the front. Or, uh, you, uh, maybe a lady. I'm sorry, I can't. Stark. It's female. It's female. Female, female person. My budding film career and what drew me to it is the question. Um, well, it was just a, a, an accident, really. Um, I mean, the, what drew me to it is that actually, when I was much younger, it was the other thing that I considered doing with my life. Um, and uh, when I was a student, I did actually did more student, spent more time involved in student theatre than in than with the student newspaper, for example. I mean, and even after I graduated from university, I did a bit of acting in in what was then a very active and creative um, British fringe theatre um, in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, and I think it's kind of astonishing that the career I failed to have in my early 20s should be offered to me in my early 60s after 40 years of unemployment. <laughs> um, no, I mean, the, the, the two things I've done, I both, well, the, well, Bridget Jones happened because the author of Bridget Jones's Diary, Helen Fielding, is a very old friend of mine. And she called me up, and I think her exact words were, how would you like to make a fool of yourself? <laughs> I said, okay, you know. Um, so, so that was that. And then I thought, you can't really, I mean, playing yourself, or at least playing a writer named Salman Rushdie, written by Richard Curtis, is kind of weird, um, because he talks in the wrong way. You know, he talks as Richard Curtis thinks I talk. Um, 
and Richard wouldn't let me write any of the lines. <laughs> I actually did have a go at writing extra lines, and then when Richard was editing the film, he cut all of them out. <laughs> um, I think, but I just think playing yourself, you could do it, you know, once maybe, and then, then after that it becomes a little tacky. Although I did, I did turn down something I very much regret, that I was called, actually when I was on my last book tour, so it'd be three years ago when Charlemagne the Clown came out, I was asked if I'd like to be in a movie which was then only called Untitled Will Ferrell NASCAR Movie. <laughs> um, and they had this idea that they would get very, very improbable people to drive NASCARs. <laughs> and they, the one, I, I know for a fact that they, as well as me, they approached Julian Schnabel um, and Lou Reed. Really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, to, to, and, and we all, for different reasons, I couldn't do it because I was on the book tour and our dates didn't work. And I mean, Lou couldn't do it, Julian couldn't do it. So in the end, I think they dropped the idea and that it's not actually in the film. But I could have been, I could have dri driven a NASCAR. Um, then the Helen Hunt thing just happened, I'm really out of the blue because it's not, I didn't know her, you know. Um, and I knew nothing about the film happening. And we just, my agency got a call and said that they were interested in having me do this. and. Would I be interested? And I was kind of flattered, you know. And I asked them for the script, and I read it, and I thought the character was, I mean, the scenes were quite good. I mean, and they were, they had a thing which I really like. I, the script, I do think it's a very well, well written film. And the thing I like about it is that the scenes can shift very quickly from comedy into sadness. You know, there's a, they, they exist on this kind of knife edge between funny and not funny, you know. And uh, I like that. I've always liked it as a, as a writer. And so I thought, okay, I'll do it. You know, and so I got to, actually the highest, the highest term of praise I ever received, I think, was at the very sort of end of it when we were doing some scene. First of all, I thought it was good when they, when they felt able to tease me. Because clearly then they thought I wasn't completely a fuck up, you know. Um, and there was a moment when, you know, if you miss your mark or you don't find the light or whatever, that when, when Colin Firth or Matthew Broderick would say, it's the writer's fault. <laughs> <laughs> it's Rushdie's fault, he's missed it again. And I, that was in a way comforting that they felt able to do that, you know, because they obviously thought I wasn't completely an idiot. Then there was a moment when Matthew Broderick pulled me to one side, kind of shyly, and he said, he said, look, have you done a lot of this? <laughs> I, th I said, you know, now I can, my life has not been in vain. I can, you know, I can die happy. <laughs> because it was very high praise. Anyway, so that's all it is. It's just, I mean, I'm not pursuing any roles, you know. Um, they came after me, but I, there have been many writers who have occasionally dabbled in acting. I mean, I, Mailer did it a bit. Um, Jetsi Kosinski did it a bit, I think. And, and, uh, and actually, I remember seeing, you remember that science fiction movie, Gattaca? Right. You know, Ethan Hawke, Uma Thurman. Well, the villain, is Gore Vidal. And appropriately so. And I thought if Gore Vidal could do this, so could I. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, so, you know, I just think it's, it's just a game. It's playing, you know? I mean, I know what my day job is, you know? But I wouldn't mind having a fallback position. <laughs> See, I... In the middle there? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. How much of yourself how much of myself do I put in my characters? Well, everything and nothing is the answer. I mean, because uh, truthfully, I put everything of myself in every sentence that I write. 
know, and it's uh, uh, and in all the characters, not just in one of them, you know, in the female characters as much as the male characters. I mean, the book is written out of my sensibility, you know, so, it can't, so you can't avoid that. Having said that, I, I've I really feel these uh, nowadays that I don't I avoid what might be called me characters, you know, characters there to represent me. I mean, sometimes writers do that in the way that, you know, Roth and Zuckerman, um, Bellow and Herzog, Proust and Marcel, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, Marcel is very unlike Proust in all sorts of ways. I mean, for example, Marcel is heterosexual, you know, to just give one way, which he's not like, not like his author. Um, and it's clear that in all these cases, you know, Joyce and Stephen Dedalus, um, in all these cases, the, the, the shadow self, the fictional self, is very like the author in many ways. I mean, Stephen Dedalus goes to the same school as Joyce and lives in the same Martello Tower that Joyce had and has versions of Joyce's friends as his friends and, um, and has many of the same political ideas and literary ideas that Joyce had. And yet, somehow, he's not Joyce. You know, he's at some odd angle to Joyce. And that's, I think, it's an interesting thing to do. And I've done it a couple of times. I did it in Midnight's Children, I suppose, you know, where, where the character of Salim, the narrator, is, you know, goes to my school and lives in my house and, and has friends who are kind of versions of my friends. Um, and I did it again in Fury. And then I got stopped because a thing happened really around that time, around the publication of Fury. When I realized that it is because too much of my life has been in public, really, I mean, much more than most writers, you know, a lot of my life has been out there in newspapers. And so people think they know what it is. And as a result, there was such an enormous desire when that novel came out to project me onto the character of the central character of the novel that I think it just deformed the way in which the novel was read. And, and, and it made me think, okay, I've got to avoid this from now on. I've got to not have characters in my novels where people can think that's the writer in disguise. And so since then, I've really avoided it. You know, I don't, I don't, and I think I will continue to avoid it. So you will not be able to find me. <laughs> and that doesn't mean I'm there and hiding. It just means I'm not there. Imaginary people are there. People who don't exist, doing things that they didn't do. In, in places they weren't in. <laughs> You're lying, right? Yes. That's fiction. That's lying good. that you have to pay money for. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the idea of, I mean, the serious point here is what do we mean then by imaginative truth? Because it's quite clear that the purpose of writing is not simply to lie, but it is also to arrive at truths about human nature and human beings and so on. And so the complicated question is why, why do we need to make up stories in order to find out what we're really like? Um, and the answer is that we just do. I mean, we are this creature that's always done it. You know, we are, we are the storytelling animal. We are, we are creatures who've always reveled in this, that we, fi we find parables or allegories or just nowadays just fictions as ways of telling ourselves who we are and exploring, if you like, who we are. Maybe under the guise of the imagination and people who didn't exist and didn't do these things, we can really explore why it is that we do things and don't do things and how it is that we actually 
operate. And I think that's the kind of truth that you get from a novel. You know, not autobiographical truth, not reportorial truth, although sometimes you can have some of that as well. But the, the essential truth of the novel is that it's a way, you know, Saul Bellow said that the novel has deep business at the roots of the human soul. And it's we're very, I mean, Saul Bellow said things like that. <laughs> but, and, and, you know, what was it? Joyce said something, what did he say? Well, Daedalus said it, you know, he wanted to forge in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscience of my race. An astonishingly pompous remark. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this is what, when writers, when writers think nobody's looking, they think they're doing something very important. <laughs> Then the book gets published and they realize they haven't. <laughs> um, but that's the fantasy of the writer, is that you are in some way working away at the roots of what it is to be a human being. It's magic journalism. Magic journalism. So it's a whole new form. <laughs> yeah. Or just magic, actually. Somebody in the corner there hiding away. Yeah. I'm hoping that you will, or that you can say how that time up until it even, you know, until now, um, how did that change you? Or did you notice anything about yourself that was different in your writing? How did that affect uh, you? Well, I mean, it's, it's a, yeah, and I'll try and say, I can't say everything because it's a long question. Um, but one of, the, one of the things that I, really thought was that there were there were several ways in which an attack like that on on my on my work as well as on me uh, could have derailed me as as a writer and what and one of the ways was that it could have scared me into you know playing safe and only writing little unadventurous fictions that never went near any kind of dangerous edge. And, and the other way it could have damaged me was in a way the opposite of that. That it could have you know, filled me with thoughts of revenge and anger, bitterness and so on. And then I would have written embittered, angry, kind of revenge fictions. You know? And I, I thought that both of those would be crippling to me as, as an artist because they would make me a side effect of the event that happened to me. And, and I would lose, if you like, my autonomy um, as a writer. I would just simply become a consequence of the attack. Um, and so I did tell myself really from the beginning that what I had to do was avoid both those elephant traps and really to try and go on being the kind of writer I'd always tried to be. You know, just to just to continue down the road, <coughs> as if nobody had tried to attack the satanic verses, and as if nobody had tried to kill anyone. You know, um, but at the same time, of course, if you're any kind of a, a serious artist, you can't ignore the circumstances of your life, and you have to pay attention to them, and you have to try and understand them, and 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 in the end, everything comes out somewhere. Uh, so the question only was how. But I, I wanted the books to go on feeling like my books. You know? and, and I mean, I think that if you look at, at the body of my work, there isn't a terrible rupture in 1989. 
You know, I mean, I think the books that come after it, you can see how they fit with the books that come before it. I mean, I think there's a continuity there. Um, they're not all the same. I mean, they do develop, but they partly develop just because, you know, writers grow older and change and, and have new concerns and feel they've done enough with things they did before and so on. But I think, I, I hope it's true to say that my work has continued to follow, if you like, the needs of my artistic intelligence rather than be in some way overturned by or diverted by the attack against it. You know, writers are very obstinate creatures. <laughs> and I discovered, I guess, in myself a level of bloody-mindedness that I didn't know I possessed. I was very glad to find it, you know. And it also did strike me that you know, many, many writers in the history of the world have suffered um, terrible uh, obstacles and dangers and privations. You know, Dostoevsky faced a firing squad. Um, and was just reprieved at the 11th hour and 59th minute and 59th second. Um, and, you know, went on to write some of the greatest novels ever written. Um, you know, Jean Genet spent much of his life in jail. Um, and, I mean, if you look in the, in the rest of the world, even today, there's, it, there's no shortage of attacks on writers. And it just struck me that if you look at the history of literature, being in trouble is no excuse for not doing your job. You know, and so I just thought I'm going to, you have to be worthy of it, you know, you have to rise to the occasion because that's what writers have always tried to do, whether it's Ovid or Mandelstam or whoever it might be. And you have to think, well, this is, this is my turn, you know. You don't want to flop. You want to be able to walk in the footsteps of those great men who went before you. We have a lady over there. You know, um, I remember Prince Philip, the husband of that great literary critic, <laughs> um, in Buckingham Palace, um, once saying that he was talking about how important it was to have, you know, proper time in the school curriculum for for sport, for games, and. And he said, the reason for this is that it's very important for children to learn how to lose. Now, at that point, I thought, there in one sentence is the difference between England and America. <laughs> 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 uh, I can't imagine 
an American Prince Philip saying that. You know, he said the exact opposite. You know. I mean, yes, of course. I mean, yeah. I mean, failure. Failure is, you're writing a book. You know, you, 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 every day is a failure. Um, every day you discover you can't make it quite as good as you want to do, and, and, and you, you know, it isn't. I mean, most of the peri most of the long period it takes to write a book is not getting it right, and you have to learn exactly from the process of not getting it right what you need to do in order to get it right, and hopefully by the end you've managed to produce something which is worth reading. Also, remember, I was saying earlier that it, my early work was anything but successful. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I left university in 1968 trying to be a writer, and Midnight's Children was published in 1981, and that was the first time I had any success as a writer. So you could say this 12 and a half years of failure uh, before anything happened to my work. and. Uh, uh, so yeah, I mean, I paid my dues, all right. You know, and I think, in fact, it was very odd for me because in those days, that in, in England, there was the arrival of this, you know, what I think is now generally accepted to be a very remarkable generation of of British writers. Um, you know, Martin Amis, Ian McEwan, Angela Carter, uh, Timothy Moe, Kazuo Ishiguro, Bruce Chatwin. Um, and so on and so on and so on. And all of these writers, all roughly the same kind of age as me, all seemed to find their voices and to get going much earlier. And it felt like being kind of stranded on the start line, you know, while everybody kind of rushed past in Ferraris. You know, <laughs> boom. You know, so, of course, you know, I hated them. <laughs> um, and, uh, and 12 years later, I caught up. But you know, yes, of course you learn from that. I mean, you have, as I said to you, saying earlier, that after the, the, the failure of the first novel, I had to really rethink everything I thought about writing and everything I thought about me. Um, it's very interesting. I, there was a great sentence. I saw an interview with Juno Diaz just recently after his wonderful book, uh, the Oscar Wilde, that novel just won the Pulitzer Prize. And somebody said to him, why did it take you 10 years to write the novel? Um, and he said, because I had to become the person who could write the novel. You know? And he actually, he said, literally described it as having to grow into a better person, you know, grow into a, a more compassionate, a more generous, a tenderer person, so that he could write that wonderfully compassionate and generous and tender novel. And I think that's right, you know, years of unsuccess teach you that it's not just a question of having a better idea and the skill to write it. You actually have to become a better person. You actually have to find in yourself the depth that enables you to be the writer that can be recognized as worth reading. You know, so yeah, I think those 12 years served me, in, served me well in retrospect. Um, I would have liked them to be shorter, though. LAUGHTER uh, we have one more question. Way at the back there, I see somebody. Uh, do I say, see a hand up? Oh, yes. Stand up. Stand up, please. Yeah, you there, ma'am. Yeah. There, there. No, oh, somebody's standing up. All right. Somebody's standing up. That's there good. We, yeah, good. Yeah. Um, the question is about uh, the Emperor Akbar, who in the novel has a, a queen um, who he appears to have made up. 
um, as it says, in the way that lonely children make up imaginary friends. But then because he's an all-powerful emperor, um, she exists. Um, or else. <laughs> you know? um, and he's, there's a moment in the novel where he's, where he's beginning to, you know, he's like most kings, speaks of himself in the first person plural. And he begins to wonder that if he were to allow himself to be that much more vulnerable thing, the first person singular, um, maybe it would enrich his life with her. Um, and then he tries it out and she doesn't notice. <laughs> Which, you know, is how it usually goes. <laughs> uh, but but the, thing about, the thing about the imaginary queen that I just, it's, it's interesting that if you were, I mean, if we were in, in India now and I was to ask the audience the name of the queen of Akbar the Great, you know, 99% of the audience would reply that her name was Jodha or Jodhabai. And not only that, but they would tell you stuff about her. They would say that she was a Hindu Rajput princess, um, that she was the mother of his heir, uh, Prince Salim, who became Emperor Jahangir. Um, that he was so tolerant and open-minded that he never obliged her to convert to Islam uh, and that he would even join her in her Hindu religious practices as a proof of his all-inclusive attitude to religion. Um, and people deeply believe this and it's been, the belief has been underlined by at least two major Bollywood movies uh, which tell the story uh, of, of Akbar and, and Jodha. And, and the problem is that if you look at the contemporary historical record of his reign, there's no such person. She's just not there. And there are very detailed, exhaustive histories written by contemporaries um, of Akbar's reign, which tell you all the queens he did have and, and their provenance and their names and, and their nicknames and their life stories. And there is nobody by that name. Uh, and the, the woman who was Akbar's major, m most important queen, um, and who was, in fact, the mother of his, of his heir, Jahangir, uh, was a woman called Maryam Zamani. And Maryam Zamani, as people will, from India will hear, is a name, is, is, an, is a Muslim name. So she clearly, she was a Rajput princess. She did convert to Islam. She was never called Jodha. And she wasn't the person that the legend believes her to be. And yet, the legend has become very, very, very um, powerful. And, and even when you, I mean, mo there isn't a lead, there isn't a, a contemporary serious Indian historian who would argue with what I'm saying. I mean, it is very, you know, well known amongst historians that Jodhai is a legend. But she's a legend that's crept into the record and been, as I say, proved very enduring. And I thought how strange it is that a king as well known as Akbar, you know, should have a queen that everybody believes to exist but who didn't exist. And then I thought, well, maybe even then, everybody believed she existed, but she didn't exist. <laughs> maybe that was true then. You know? um, and that, I guess, gave me the idea of allowing him to have this Pygmalion-like power of bringing a, a human life into being through a kind of pure act of will. You know? and, then, and then, of course, what happens is she escapes his control, because I think that's 
that's kind of true of the act of creation in general, that the created thing no longer belongs to the creator. You know, it's true of Pygmalion and Galatea. It's true of the author and his book. It's true of, if you believe in these things, God and man. Um, you know, once you've created a being with free will, can you uncreate them? No. And vice versa, you know, given that it's more plausible to argue that men created God. Um, once you've created God, can you uncreate him? Or is it possible if you create an absolute being that you can't, that you can't uncreate, he gets away from you? You know, and then there's just an absolutely powerful being out there that you created, and, you know, and he's you know messing with you. <laughs> uh, so, so that idea, I think, of the relationship between the creator and the created, was something I wanted to explore, and I uh, was able to do it through this through this device. More questions? Okay, who has another question? We'll give him. I see somebody right in the center, you, there, right there on the, this side. Check, check shirt. Or, check shirt. Check shirt. Thank you. Thank you. For a number of years, um, and particularly after, after September 11th, it seems to me, this is personal and anecdotal, that for a period of time he became almost more a political figure and a voice for a certain uh, a response to radical Islam and against his period, almost more so than a, than a literary figure. No, I think it's not at all. I don't think it's at all imagined. I think you're, it's completely accurate, and the reason that it's happened is because I wanted it to happen. Um, that's, I remember there was a moment very soon after 9-11 when there was a lot of pressure on me to write a lot of, a lot of you know, articles in newspapers and, and be on television and radio and talk about it all. And I remember the, a, a phrase or a, a, a thing said by a woman at the New York Times but she said, the reason I had to do it, she said, is that the news agenda has come round to you. That sounds frightening. I thought, you know, I'm just standing here. <laughs> but apparently the news agenda you know, had swung round and <laughs> there I was. <laughs> so I hadn't suspected the existence before of this enormous vehicle, the news agenda. You know, and what it did. But, I mean, I, I took it seriously in the sense that I felt that I did know some things that other people in America in particular might not have thought about that much until that moment, and, and that I had some experience of my own which might be valuable to share. Um, and so I did, yeah, I did write some of that stuff um, for a while, and I, I got, I agreed to have a syndicated column that the New York Times syndicated. And that went on for four or five years. And then exactly as you say, I began to worry that I was beginning to be seen as, if you like, as non-fictional. You know, uh, that, 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 that what people were, were looking to me for was commentary um, rather, than, rather than creation. 
And I began to feel that it was actually getting in the way of people's level of interest in reading my novels and, 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 in the way, and getting in the way of how they read them too. And I thought, this is, this is bad because I didn't actually get into this game to be a talking head, you know, or, or a kind of rent-a-quote, um, uh, you know, or, or a, a kind of op-ed figure. And actually, truthfully, I had great trouble during that time when I was writing the, it was a monthly column I wrote for Syndicated. I had great trouble having an opinion every month. Um, I, I thought, you know, with, admiringly of people like Friedman and Dowd, who had two opinions a week. Uh, <laughs> I thought, I don't know, is there some secret shop where they go and get the opinions that you, that you, you, need, to, you need to have a special handshake before they let you in? Uh, because, ah, you know, two opinions a week would have defeated me utterly. Um, you know, one a month was hard. And so at the end, I thought, you know, actually, the, the reason why this is so is that I'm not an opinion guy. It's, it's actually not who I am. There are people who, for whom opinions, to whom opinions come naturally. They wake up in the morning and, gee, they've got an opinion. <laughs> and, and I don't, I find as I get older, I get more and more puzzled. And I'm just more interested in exploring the nature of my confusion, I suppose. You know? and, and, and so I stopped. I mean, I very deliberately stopped. I stopped doing the column, and I stopped. I mean, even now, you know, there's a, a, a many requests for me most weeks to comment on something or other to do with the world we now live in. And, and I've just resisted. And I've made a very big effort to say, I'm not that. This is what I am. I became a writer to tell stories. I want to find stories to tell and tell them. And that's it. That'll do for me, you know? Um, and so that's what, I, that's what I hope this book is. And I think it's, it doesn't mean that you have to be not interested in politics, you know? It, it doesn't mean that you don't have to write about politics. It just means you have to avoid a certain kind of media presence. Uh, because that presence avoids you having another, it, 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 it vitiates you having another kind of media presence. You know, the kind of media presence I want is as the maker of my novels and stories. And I don't want this other one. I don't want to be, you know, whatever it is, you know, Mr. Critic of Islam. You know, uh, there was a, the, the last thing that I did which I thought was valuable was to was to take on the, presidency of American Penn, because I thought, you know, that Penn was incredibly supportive of me when I needed it, and I thought, maybe a thing I can do with this extra access of attention that came my way is put it to work on behalf of other writers who need it. Because, you know, to put it bluntly, if I call people, they come to the phone. And there are many other writers who are great writers who would try to make the same phone call and people would not come to the phone. So, I mean, so it was helpful. One could rent out this you know, this, this Salman Rushdie, send him out to work, you know, on other people's behalf. And there were moments when I felt that that really was helpful. I mean, I remember just, I mean, just because I remember this first off my head, there was a case where we, we were called in very late from, by Australian pen because a particular Iranian writer who had sought asylum in Australia 
had been refused asylum and had gone through the whole process and had been refused and he was on the verge of being deported back to Iran where it was quite clear he would not, it would not be good for his health you know, to, to, to get back there. Uh, but the whole process was over. I mean, they, they called us very late and they just said, is there anything you can do? So, so I wrote a letter to the, the, the head of the tri tribunal that had heard his case uh, I mean, I wrote it, you know, as president of a Pan American Center, and and uh, and, and asked them for various, you know, for the obvious reasons to reopen the case because they were putting this man's life in danger, and they did reopen it, and they gave him asylum, and he was able to stay, and I felt kind of ludicrously happy because I, because it wasn't, you know, in a way, it wasn't me; it was Salman Rushdie, you know. <laughs> Uh, that had done it. Uh, you know, this is, Gunter Grass says this thing. He says this thing about how he feels that there are two people. There's a person he knows who stays, who, who he lives with, you know, called Gunter. And then there's this other person called Grass, you know, who has this kind of public presence. And he thinks sometimes, like he, he, says, he said, he said, I quite like, I like staying home and writing and sending grass out, you know, <laughs> you know to sort of make trouble. Um, and I sort of, I have that feeling a little bit that I have the person that I know called Salman who's at home watching TV and so on, and then there's Rushdie, you know, who you can put out there. And do, so, that, so I did that with Penn, and, and uh, but now I think it's absolutely true to say that I'm anxious not to be a political figure. I don't, I really, I'm resisting it. So the reason you don't see it is because of a decision I made. Sir Salman Rushdie, thank you for joining us here. And I'd like to thank Capital of Book Cafe. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.